It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This week on EU Confidential... Farmer protests in Poland, Romania and other EU countries have been bubbling over for weeks. Farmers are upset about the impact of cheap Ukrainian grain, which they claim is flooding the market and making it tougher for their own businesses. It's become a surprisingly tense political battle between a handful of EU countries and Brussels, as well as undermining relations between the EU and Ukraine. We'll unpack that in just a moment. Also in this episode, is European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen gearing up for another term as Commission Chief? That question is already swirling around the EU quarter here in Brussels and back in our home country of Germany. We'll debate her future with our podcast panel. And later, the EU's first High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, Catherine Ashton, brings us inside the negotiating room for some of the biggest geopolitical moments of recent memory. I spent four and a half years negotiating on the Iran deal until the very final few weeks of it. And I can remember conversations about what would happen if an American president came in who thought that the deal should not exist, thought that we made the wrong decisions and so on. Suzanne Lynch, Politico's Chief Brussels Correspondent. And to help us unpack all of this in more depth, we're joined by our Senior Policy Editor for Energy and Environment, Jan Chensky. And we're also joined here in the studio by Hans von der Burchard, our Senior Politics Reporter, who's usually based in Germany, but is here in the studio. Welcome, Hans. Hello. Nice to be back. So, look, let's start with a story both yourself and myself were working on this week. We wrote about this earlier this week, and that is the question of what's next for Ursula von der Leyen. So she's one of the most recognisable figures in the EU. She's the president of the European Commission. And although we're a year out from European elections, when the top EU jobs will come into play, already the speculation is starting. So to start off, Hand, remind us, how Ursula von der Leyen found herself in the position of Commission President in the first place back in 2019? Well, it was actually a big surprise back then in 2019 because she was not on the list for that job. So um, if you think how the process is supposed to be is that the European Parliament, the big political groups in the European Parliament, they nominate lead candidates in the election, so-called Spitzenkandidat, that's a German word for lead candidate. 
You bring us nicely to our word of the week. On this podcast, we usually dissect and unpack Brussels jargon. And what better piece of Brussels jargon than Spitzenkandidat? Spitzenkandidat. Explain to us, what is Spitzenkandidat? The European Council nominates the European Commission president. But there is a good argument to say that that's not really democratic because although all the EU leaders in the council are democratically elected themselves, you might want to say that European citizens who elect their national leaders in elections don't really think that those leaders then at some point later will also elect the European Commission president. And especially because the European Commission president which used to be a more bureaucratic role, has become so political now. We see it with von der Leyen, who's negotiating uh, vaccine contracts during the COVID crisis, had a huge role there, who's now traveling to China, who's traveling to the US to deal with trade issues, huge geopolitical questions. So you might want to say that actually European citizens, European voters should have a better democratic say about who this person is and not just have their leaders at some stage nominate that person. So there this whole idea of the Spitzenkandidat process comes into play because it's the European political parties, uh, like the European People's Party, the Social Democrats, the Greens, etc. They put forward a lead candidate in the election and then voters know more or less if I vote for this party, I kind of like give a vote also to this lead candidate and there's a chance that let's say the center-left candidate or the center-right candidate gets the commission presidency. But the problem, just very briefly, is that there's nothing binding the European Council, the EU leaders, and they also accept it. And they might accept it as they did in 2014, or they may not as it happened in 2019. Yeah, so the idea is that it's kind of somebody campaigns to be commission president yeah. during the European Parliament election season. I can remember myself following that back in 2014 and going on the campaign trail, quote-unquote, with Jean-Claude Juncker, who did end up being the European Commission president and was the Spitzen candidate. But as you say, 2019, that system was abandoned. The main issue was, for example, that the main Conservative Party, because of course the Conservative Party came out strong, most strongly, the centre-right bloc, the European People's Party, but their candidate that was put forward, Manfred Weber, wasn't really appealing to leaders, especially not to Emmanuel Macron, because he doesn't speak French. <laughs> so they basically decided, no, we don't want system at the last e- moment. E- exactly. Let's so parachute a, in somebody else. Let's parachute in somebody else. And there was Ursula von der Leyen, Elle parle français. Uh. That's very important to Emmanuel Macron. But it was also appealing to other leaders. She was really like a good choice for everybody, including for Germany, because she's from Angela Merkel's party, who is still um, uh, leading Germany back then. And uh, so she came as out of the surprise, out of the box, even though nobody had really spoken officially of her before. And she was nominated by the council. The European Parliament was sidelined. And there she was. So she was the German defence minister. So she had a bit of a profile, but yeah, a bit of a surprise candidate in the end. Okay, so now we're at the point where we're a year out from the European elections and already speculation is turning to von der Leyen's next move. She's in the final year, coming into the final year of her five-year mandate. And the big question here that we're hearing all around Brussels gossip is, will she stay on for a second mandate? And will she get that support for that? Now, I suppose one element of this is she could get another job. There's been a lot of speculation that the NATO Secretary General position is coming up for grab soon, but that probably falls a bit too early. It would not align with the end of her mandate. Uh, but this week, Hans, you and myself, we were writing about this. Kind of been interesting what's happening in Germany because one of the big differences, last time around, her party, the CDU, the Conservative, the centre-right party in Germany, was in power under Angela Merkel. Now they're not. 
She is effectively an opposition leader, if you like, and Chancellor Schultz is now the Chancellor from a different party. So she would need to get nominated by Germany, by her home country. So she was in Berlin on Monday. Tell us a bit about what you're hearing, about what the thinking is in Berlin about backing von der Leyen for a potential second term. So the interesting thing is that her own party, the Christian Democrats, they back her already. And that's interesting in a way because before they have been quite critical of her because of what a lot of Christian Democratic MEPs here in Brussels who thought she's too left, she's too much on green policies, too much ignoring the needs and, and the interests of the conservative political party of the voters. And now they've really closed the ranks behind her and really say, like, she's our candidate. Then the question is, of course, what is Germany's government going to do? Because as you mentioned, they, she needs Germany's backing. And the government is now more center-left, as Olaf Scholz, the chancellor from the Social Democrats, and we have the Greens in there and the Liberal Party. So, of course, if we get to a situation where there is a strong center-left candidate from the socialist and democratic bloc out there, Olaf Scholz would be absolutely compelled to back that person. I mean, that would... From his own party group, yeah. From his own party that would... I mean, even though he thinks... Actually, he gets along quite well with von der Leyen, it just politically, it it would be very hard for him. But there's also a good case that uh, the conservatives win again and they may manage to form a majority in the at, parliament in, in the, the parliament in the european parliament or for other reasons i mean i mentioned this with uh, le francais that uh, the other candidate doesn't speak french for example and they're just ursula von der leyen ticks a lot of boxes she's popular uh, really around almost all she european is. countries yeah. m- except uh, maybe hungary <laughs> and 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 poland perhaps but that's why it, it just makes a lot of sense for European leaders to back her and also for Olaf Scholz to back her. So far, he has been a non-committal because, of course, he doesn't want to be too much like out there saying, like, I want the center-right uh, leader to be elected when there's actually an election coming up and his own party could get the post. But still, also the working relationship, everything we hear from Berlin is actually going quite smoothly. Yeah, so there is a sense, that is the calculation in Berlin, look, it's better to have a germ, one of our own. She may be from the other side of the political track, but she's German, as she understands German politics. It's better to have her in this top role, you know, better the devil you know kind of thing. Absolutely, because with von der Leyen, you have somebody who also knows the sensitivities and, the, and really all the interest of German politics, who can come to German government to cabinet meetings that just happened in March. When they invited her. To they invited her. And she knows how the German those German government meetings work, because again, she was before the German defense minister and in other roles. Also, just if uh, you mentioned NATO... It could be an option, but honestly, knowing von der Leyen and seeing how comfortable she, she feels in her role, this high-level thing is always what she's been striving for. We could see it also before we as defense minister. She always wanted for higher up. She wanted to become German chancellor at some point, which didn't work. So for her, if she can get a second term, I think it makes a lot of sense to also accept that offer. And it's probably more interesting for her than NATO, even though NATO is, of course, interesting but yeah. as well. But yeah. We'll see. All we do know is that this week, von der Leyen trotted out what I expect is going to be a rote answer, which is, I have not made my decision yet. She said, the date has not been set. We're more than a year away from the European election. So no doubt, uh, like many incumbent politicians before her, she will trot out the non-denial denials a lot over the next few months when she's inevitably asked by this. Hans, thanks a million for joining us. No doubt we'll return to this topic in the months ahead. Absolutely, with pleasure. I'm joined now by Jan Chensky, our Senior Policy Editor for Energy Environment and Resident Expert in All Things Poland. Thanks very much for having me. 
Look, maybe bring us up to date on what's happened this week. There was an extraordinary development over last weekend and into the early part of this week, whereby Poland and several other countries effectively halted the import of grain and other food products from Ukraine into their countries. Uh, Tell us what happened. This move came as a complete surprise to the Ukrainians. They were entirely blindsided. The Poles had been unhappy for a while, and they were talking to the Ukrainians about bringing the grain exports under control. What happened is that that Ukraine used to export the vast majority of its grain through the Black Sea ports and out the Black Sea off to the Third World and that sort of thing. And for obvious reasons with the war, that stopped. And then there's an agreement with Russia that allows some grain to be shipped out of southern Ukraine. But the Ukrainians have have turned to the EU to allow the uh, transshipment of their grain, mostly across Poland to the Baltic ports and out into the world that way. So that's been happening for a while. And what happened was that some of that grain, which was supposed to be sent for transit, ended up leaking into the domestic grain supply in Central European countries and especially in Poland. Businessmen were buying up the grain that was meant for transit and then sticking it on the domestic market, which then caused the grain price in Poland to fall, which obviously annoyed the farmers in Poland because they saw their prices for grain start to slump. And for the Poland's law and justice government, the farmers are a crucial voting bloc ahead of uh, this fall's likely parliamentary election. They need to keep the farmers sweet. And there were growing demonstrations in the countryside. The government was very, very worried about its standing among farmers. And so it started these talks with Ukraine about limiting uh, grain sales into Poland, about ensuring no leakage. And then over the weekend, they just completely slammed down the gate on Ukrainian grain exports. It's a crucial issue for Ukraine. Ukraine, because of the war, sells very little to the outside world. Agricultural shipments are about 10% of GDP right now. So the Ukrainians have to get this stuff to market. And it's also crucial to many developing countries. They need Ukrainian wheat. And without that, you end up creating uh, global food uh, shortages and uh, price spikes. So very interesting here how this big geopolitical moment between Ukraine and Russia and how Europe and Poland has gone in behind Ukraine is now colliding with real politics and, you know, the economics of agricultural imports, exports and, you know, domestic politics ahead. As you said, there's a huge, very important election expected at the end of the year in Poland. And the Polish agriculture minister actually resigned over this in the last few weeks. On the same day, if I'm right, that President Zelensky was in Warsaw. Exactly. And uh, he resigned because he said he was unable to get EU help to deal with Ukrainian grain exports. So the Poles took it into their own hands. They argued that they had the right under the trade agreement that was struck between Ukraine and the EU, that individual countries did have the right to intervene and act. Brussels does not agree with that. And it was there was a pretty clear statement from the European Commission that countries can't impose trade barriers on their own. The core functioning, the core reason that the EU exists is to have a common trade policy. So if each country is able to set up its own trade barriers, the EU stops functioning. So that really set alarm bells ringing in Brussels when the, when the polls did that. And as we're recording this, there was a breakthrough of sorts. Some kind of an agreement was struck this week, with Poland at least. Yeah, they're now allowing grain shipments again across the country, but they're sealed and they're only allowed to be sent across Poland to ports and out into the world. They can't be sold into the Polish market. So they're sort of in sealed rail containers as they they go across the country. But um, I've talked to people who were crossed the border recently and they said they were 
massive backups of on the Ukrainian side of the border of rail cars filled with grain waiting to see what was going to happen, uh, whether the border would open for them again. So do you think this is a, a big breach in the relationship between uh, Warsaw and Brussels? Yet another one. I mean, we know that the European Commission and Poland have been at loggerheads of rule of law, etc. I mean, how serious is this or is it kind of a contained issue? It could have blown up into a very serious issue if the Poles had stuck to their guns and said, we will not allow this grain to go through. It would have added to the very, very long list of very serious frictions between Brussels and Warsaw. It's been resolved fast enough that I suspect that it will not be a huge issue. It's a blow to the Ukrainians, but also it's been resolved fast enough that, but it it did really hit the confidence of Ukrainians in the polls. Zelensky has been giving speeches in Polish. He's had a speech where he called Poland a sister nation. The polls have been way out in front on sending weapons and diplomatic support for the Ukrainians. And so there was this sense that these two countries are uniquely bound because of their common history and their anti-Russian views and that they were sort of a common front against Russia. This is a real kind of stab in the back for the Ukrainians as to what the Poles did for political reasons to shore up their own electoral support. Absolutely. And I know talking to people this week in Brussels, myself, we were talking about this and there is a sense that, okay, right, maybe it's getting sorted out, this particular issue. But it does speak potentially to a broader issue. And that is about the reality of Ukraine ever joining the EU. Ukraine is a country of more than 40 million people, huge geographic expanse and a massive agriculture producer. So, you know, this is maybe a taste of the reality of trying to integrate a market like that, a country like that into the EU and that it's not going to be simple, particularly when it comes to agriculture. Yeah, I mean, you you can argue that Ukraine's natural place is in the EU, so the EU should make way for it, but it's not going to be easy. I mean, I've traveled I've traveled back and forth across Ukraine and Ukraine basically If Ukraine fully joins the EU, it has so much fantastic farmland done at a very high level, very good climate. Basically, the rest of the continent could pretty well shut up farming and stop farming and they would feed themselves just fine just off Ukraine. So the scale of what's coming for the EU, from the Ukrainian farming sector, when it comes to common agricultural policy funds, all the other stuff that's crucial for French farmers, Spanish farmers and and Polish farmers is going to be a massive political headache as the uh, accession of Ukraine becomes a more realistic prospect. And we'll be watching that closely. Jan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks again. Coming right after this short break, Catherine Ashton, the EU's first High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy. She recalls some of the biggest issues she faced in those early days, including the Iran nuclear deal and Russia's annexation of Crimea. She also reveals why her time in Brussels wasn't always plain sailing. It was building a whole service from nothing and trying to manage what was going on in the world. And you always feel... Am I the right person? Could somebody do this better than me? And it was relentless. And so when I think about enjoy, I think of it wasn't the word that I would ever have chosen to describe it. That's coming up next. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Catherine Ashton was the EU's first High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, effectively the bloc's foreign policy chief, a role that was set up in 2009. In this role, Ashton was tasked with creating and leading the EU's diplomatic service, the European External Action Service, or the EEAS for short. In her new book, And Then What?, she brings us inside her time at the helm of the EU's foreign policy wing. When you go into an embassy that's French or German or Italian or Czech or Polish, you know which country you're in when you go through the door. How will you know you're at a European Union delegation? Today, the EEAS has a budget of almost 80 billion euro and employs over 4,000 people worldwide. It wasn't so much about the art on the walls or the rugs on the floor. It was about the flavour of what we were doing. So my abiding memory was looking for things that were about what Europe could do that perhaps individual member states could not, and certainly others could not. Ashton, or Baroness Ashton, as she officially is known, hails from the UK, which was, of course, back then, a member of the European Union. But how she came to serve as a British member of the European Commission was anything but a given. You describe pretty vividly the moment where you got the call from the British Prime Minister. You know, when you were in London, you were Speaker of the House of Lords and you got this call that you were going to Brussels. You were packing your bags and off to Brussels. Tell us about that. I found myself watching my name going down the, around the bottom of the television set, like the ticker tape at the bottom of the news, BBC News, Sky News, wherever, that was telling me that I was going to Brussels to replace Peter Mandelson, who was coming back a year early. And I watched this for quite a long time, wondering if anybody was actually going to contact me because this was the first I knew of it. And in the way of things, some hours passed before eventually I got a call from the then Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, to say, can you get the next train to Brussels? And at that point, I was able to ask him, well, does that mean I'm going? Uh, And he was confused because the system sort of assumes the system's going to be working. But of course, there are some things that only a prime minister can do. And one of those is to appoint people to Brussels. So off I went on the next train, having got my husband to come down with my passport to get on the Eurostar uh, and off to see Jose Manuel Barroso, who's then president of the European Commission, and found myself in Brussels for what I thought was going to be a maximum of 12 months. But as it turned out, Six years later was when I finally came home. 
So you came to Brussels first as the replacement for Peter Mandelson as the Trade Commissioner, but then very soon after, you were appointed as the first foreign policy chief. So the European External Action Service, the EU's foreign policy wing, was set up for the first time, and you were the person setting it up. I mean, how was that transition? It was extraordinary because, as I describe in the book, you know, there's a sort of jigsaw puzzle that comes together of the appointments that are made in the top jobs, as it's called, in the Brussels bubble. Um, The European Commission, the Council, of course, the Parliament, and then this new role of the High Representative for Foreign and Security Policy, First Vice President of the European Commission, a huge job title, but as you rightly say, Foreign Policy Chief. And it's done in a sort of, as I say, jigsaw puzzle way. So they look at who they've got in which job. And you look at different countries, different sizes, different parts of Europe. One of the consistent themes of all the other jobs was that they were all men. And so by the time they get to the foreign policy chief, which is a rung below, at least, the kind of presidential jobs, a woman comes into the possibilities because they know that they ought to consider making some kind of at least nod to gender balance. And uh, it also went, in this case, to the sort of left of centre parties, and they wanted a Brit. So if you put together Brit woman centre-left, what you end up with is people that they've heard of, and in this case it was me. One of the big issues where Ashton played a key role was in the negotiations around the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. This was a landmark agreement in which Iran agreed to dismantle much of its nuclear programme in exchange for sanction relief. Now, years later, the deal has stalled. I asked Ashton about her assessment of where things have gone wrong and whether the EU has a role to play in unblocking the current stalemate. Well, the problem was, of course, that President Trump decided to pull out And, you know, when we were negotiating the final agreement, I spent four and a half years negotiating on the Iran deal until the very final few weeks of it. And I can remember conversations about what would happen if an American president came in who thought that the deal should not exist, thought that we made the wrong decisions and so on. And I think the majority view, really, of all of us was Actually, if this deal is good enough, then it will stay. And it was good enough. But we hadn't reckoned on President Trump's desire to dramatically change relations and to to unpick the deal. So the first thing to say is that's where that comes from. The EU tried really hard to try and keep the deal going. But the, the context of it was that for Iran, they were going to get economic benefit. And of course, that didn't happen if you had the Americans pulled out. I mean, that's one of the themes you touch on in your book. You have a description of those days of the nuclear agreement, the JCPOA, as it's known, being signed. And at one point, there's you, you describe, it's fascinating how the Americans actually have their own parallel process going on and um, have their own parallel document. And then there's confusion because they're working from a document and the other players in the room, including the EU, don't know about it. I mean, is this a kind of... Uh, proof that really it all comes down to the US. A lot of these foreign policy decisions comes down to Washington and they're really calling the shots ultimately. No, I don't think it does. I think, I mean, I tried to describe it in a way to show that almost the human nature of these discussions, that actually there are things going on that need to happen. I was a huge supporter of 
the Americans having some kind of dialogue with Iran because all the other countries were. They were able to do it openly, go to visit Tehran, have Tehran come visit them. The Americans could not because of the relationship that existed. So they had to do it very quietly. But then we had to merge it all together. And doing that is a very, well, was a complicated and at times quite challenging thing to do. I never underestimate the importance of the United States of America, particularly in the context of the relationship with the European Union. But there are circumstances where what the EU does is different and is leadership. And if you look at that chapter, what I'm also describing is that it was our job to try and pull it all back together, which we did. That was what America wanted us to do, and that's what we did. So it's the relationship that exists that matters. And I think for European foreign policy to develop, it's about Europe deciding its foreign policy and determining its priorities and taking on that leadership role. We're capable in Europe. I say we, I'm a conscious, I say it as a Brit, but I am a European. And I think it's really important that Europe is seen to be leading in areas of policy where it's obviously in Europe's interests, and it's obvious that we have the capacity, the expertise and the the soft power necessary to do that. One of the other big foreign policy issues, of course, during your uh, tenure was uh, Russia's incursion into Crimea, into the east of Ukraine, and all those events around Ukraine's promise and path to EU membership, and then the decision by their president to pull out of signing an association agreement with the EU at the last minute. Looking back on how the EU treated those early days of, I mean, what the Ukrainians see at the beginning of Russia's war in Ukraine, 2014, do you think the EU was naive? Do you think it did enough to confront the threat posed by Putin back then? You know, it's a really interesting question. And of course, it's one that anybody involved at that time asks themselves every day is, was there more we could have done? When I wrote um, with with colleagues the conclusions for the Council, for the Foreign Affairs Council, just after the Russians had gone into Crimea, the word we began with was invasion. So there was no doubt in many of our minds that this was something extremely serious that we had to address and we had to address quickly and we had to address with strong sanctions. That didn't stay that word. It got changed a bit because one of the balancing questions that we were always asking ourselves then was how best to get Russia to change its behaviour, to change what it was doing. It was important to try and find the ability to talk to them, the ability to try and alter what was going on through at least some attempt at dialogue, through some attempt at pressure. And the combination, it's a bit like with the Iran negotiations, it's a combination of the pressure we put on through the sanctions and keeping open the willingness to talk that actually led us through the years into the JCPOA. Russia's not Iran, this is not, I'm not trying to make a comparison, but it is always important to to try and find ways to to manoeuvre. And I don't think in 2014, we knew what we were looking at. You know, Yanukovych had made this decision, there'd been seven years of negotiation. The agreement was finished, it was initialed. All he was doing was signing it. This sudden change of behaviour, we weren't quite sure what was going on. We realised quite quickly that it was to do with Russia, And then the events that spiralled quite quickly from that ended up with 
not only Russia in, in Crimea, but also in the Donbass. I went back to uh, Ukraine just before what we all know called lockdown. And what I was struck by was that this was not a frozen conflict. There was a lot going on. Russia was making incursions all the time into the Donbass. People were getting very worried then about what might happen. And there was a sense that we really, all of us in the international community needed to rethink what we were doing because it got stuck. Perhaps looking back, what we didn't do was think, okay, this has happened. Where do we go? What does this mean? And how do we decide a plan of action that's going to not just keep the pressure on, but keep strengthening the pressure, applying more and more and more? I think it kind of, we kind of moved away from it. One thing that struck me reading your book was that in the very first page, you recall that you're often asked whether you enjoyed your time as the EU's high rep, and you say the answer was no. So the thing about the job is that I described it once as flying a plane while trying to screw the wings on, because I not only had to deal with whatever issues came our way, and it was a time of great turbulence. You know, we had what we call the Arab Spring, we had dramatic events, as you've rightly pointed out, in Ukraine. We had the Iran deal. We had all sorts of things happening. I was also building a foreign policy service, the first there had been. And that meant moving thousands of people into jobs. It meant a time of great uncertainty for many people in the European institutions as they moved into the European External Action Service. And it was really challenging every day was a challenge. The building had to be got. We had to choose every stick of furniture, every colour of carpet. Everything that happened in the building was down to me and the team to try and work out. So it was building a whole service from nothing and trying to manage what was going on in the world. And you always feel, am I the right person? Could somebody do this better than me? And it was relentless. And so when I think about enjoy, I think of it wasn't the word that I would ever have chosen to describe it. I mean, you also write about your frustrations, I suppose, with the press and the press coverage. For example, it's just one small issue, but you you note that when the Serbia-Kosovo deal was struck, it wasn't really covered in the British press. How would you characterise your relationship with the press during this time? And did that bother you? Did Was that a dynamic that informed, you know, your work and your life at that time? So I describe it a bit like when you read a book and you decide what the character looks like in the book and then you see the movie and the character looks nothing like what you thought. And I sort of think my relationship with not just the press, actually, but particularly with the press was a bit like that. It was who? Who is this person? Why is she doing this? So there was a sort of beginning point that was I was the wrong fit. I was the wrong character. I didn't look like the person they thought it should be. And then that translated into, in Britain perhaps, a sense that this was about Britain's relationship with Europe. And I sort of personified that. And this was, of course, a time when there was the beginning of a feeling that Britain or people within Britain weren't sure about their relationship with Europe. And there were some who were very antagonistic to the relationship with Europe. And I sort of got caught in the middle of that too. Most of all, the press weren't at all convinced that I could do it. And so the relationship was very difficult and for me, very depressing and sad at times. But in the end, the only thing I could think to do was to get on with it and try and show 
that I could do it. And hopefully by the end of it, they saw someone who'd at least achieved some of it. Cathy Ashton, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Suzanne. And that's all we've time for today. Be sure to follow or subscribe to EU Confidential wherever you're listening so you make sure you never miss an episode. And do keep your ideas and your feedback coming. You can email us at podcast at politico.eu. This week's episode was produced and edited by our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez and Zoe Bass. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. See you next week.